Welcome to Battlecast, I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and today we're diving back into modern warfare as we recount the epic story of the secret soldiers of Benghazi. It's an interesting case study of urban stationary defense in hostile territory, sort of a modern-day western when forts were cut off during America's westward expansion, but this fort is transported into the modern world with high-definition photography and extensive drone footage. In tonight's show, armored cars face down RPGs and machine guns, their windscreens pounded into moon dust from the incessant gunfire. It's a story of desperate men running amid cascading shrapnel, a story of men cooked alive in burning buildings, a story of 13 hours of climaxing pain, each contact a rising action for the previous conflict. But before we can do that, got to thank everyone who wrote in last month. I want to thank Josh from Adelaide and Jeff and Olivia from Perth. I've also received about a million requests for different battles to cover. I want you to know I do read all your emails and I keep track of your requests on an Excel sheet. And I do use your requests to help me decide what battles to cover so you're not wasting your time. I only wish I had more time to read all your emails and respond to everybody. If I don't respond, don't feel bad. It's only because, just like you, I'm snowed under with life and responsibilities. I also have a big unthank you for all the hate mail I've gotten after the Siege of Jerusalem episode. You guys know this show is free, right? Finally, I've got a big thank you to Ben from Parts Unknown. He broke the bank and volunteered to buy me some very expensive French books. The shipping alone on these puppies was super expensive, so I'm very grateful for Ben. But I want to stop right there. Because if I start naming people, I'm going to leave someone out, and I don't want to do that. So, I want to send a big thank you to Chloe and everybody working the late shift at St. Luke's in Boise. We love our night shift listeners here at Battlecast. And uh, If you want to buy us a round, head over to thebattlecast.com and hit that Make a Donation button. But that's enough of the business. Now let's examine the heart of modern warfare. It's 13 hours of pain condensed into 80 minutes of podcast. My words drip with hardship and blood. My words are a story of death. Listen to me, brothers, because here is a story of your countrymen cut off a world away, a civilization away, one bullet away from the next life, 13 hours of pain. In February 2011, a civil war broke out in Libya. It was a war that sought to overthrow Muammar Gaddafi, the colonel who had led a coup d'etat in 1969 and had ruled the Libyan people in essentially a corrupt dictatorship for over 40 years. For decades, the regime had used oil revenues and very little else to fund a massive spending campaign for regular Libyan people. I'm talking massive welfare and military expenditures with lots of money going to key supporters of the regime. You know the old story, meat and potatoes for the loyal supporters with the right ideas, of course, and crumbs for the dogs. In Libya, everyone was corrupt. The economy outside the oil industry was almost non-existent. There were few state structures, and few Libyans identified with the nation of Libya as a whole. Rather, they identified with their family or their clan, or more broadly, their religion. In 2003, 
Libya agreed to give up its pursuit of weapons of mass destruction in exchange for reintegration with the modern global economy. Previously, sanctions had muted oil revenue. Now that Libya had given up her weapons, the taps were turned back on and the money of the West flowed into Gaddafi's pockets, which he then used to pay his favorite cronies and also to flood regular Libyan people with welfare. To put the massive impact of oil revenue in context, Libyan per capita income increased from $2,000 in 1969 to $10,000 in 1979. Libya's economy was oil, and there was basically nothing else. Dirk Van de Waal describes the regime in his History of Modern Libya this way. By 2011, Gaddafi had successfully maintained the fiction of popular participation in the Libyan government, while its political system made any real participation impossible. But the economic situation in the country had improved for the average Libyan. Businessmen flocked to Tripoli in increasingly large droves, and Libya was being reintegrated into the international community. With its recent economic fortunes dramatically enhanced and its traditional coercive mechanisms solidly in place, the regime looked as invincible and unassailable as it ever had been at the same time, however. The revolution had also become totally irrelevant to most Libyans beyond the money and the welfare it provided. People lived with the revolution and could not escape it, but they ignored it whenever possible. What was private and what was public were kept perfectly separated, end quote. As Gaddafi celebrated the start of a new year, his regime seemed more secure than ever. Money was flowing in, oil was flowing out, major political players in the West took him and his ideas seriously. The population seemed compliant. And then the cork popped out of the bottle, and a champagne spurt of blood exploded in Libyan streets on February 15th. Gaddafi could not believe it. Few in the West had predicted it, but yet the cork unstopped and the blood flowed nonetheless. The revolt began in Benghazi after a prominent human rights lawyer was arrested. Key Gaddafi regime officials were then attacked and overthrown. Most Libyans still loyal to Gaddafi fled the revolt's key areas. Many small towns and large cities fell to the rebels. However, Gaddafi caught his breath and began a long counterattack. The rebels had waited too long to follow up their successes. This brings us to another rule of warfare and politics, attack and keep attacking until the enemy is utterly nullified, until he is unable to resist, until then never rest. Stonewall said it right, I must make my men sweat by striking hard and continuously in order to save their blood. Aesop said it like this, never put off until tomorrow what can be done today. And our forefathers said it like this, make hay while the sun shines. Anyway, the battle raged between the two sides along the key coastal Mediterranean areas. The Libyan Air Force remained loyal to Gaddafi and consistently blunted any gains made by the rebels. A modern historian provides a summary of what happened next. Quote, While the battles between the two sides raged back and forth along the coastal area, loyalist troops steadily advanced towards the de facto rebel capital of Benghazi. By the morning of March 16th, they were set to start encircling the capital of Serenica. Already by that time, several of the country's top diplomats had started to defect, and both the United Nations and Europe had implemented a number of sanctions that targeted Gaddafi and his family and once more imposed arms embargoes on his regime. Meanwhile, 
A transitional national council emerged that declared itself the sole representative of the Libyan people. It was soon recognized by many Western nations around the world as the sole representative of the Libyan people, end quote. In mid-March, the United Nations adopted Security Council Resolution 1973, which enforced a no-fly zone in Libyan airspace. This, in effect, nullified Gaddafi's air force advantage over the rebels. The United States agreed to enforce the UN resolution. One of Gaddafi's major sources of power, his air force, was removed from the conflict. However, the rebels' position continued to deteriorate, and they became totally dependent on NATO help in order to survive. In effect, NATO, not local Libyans, would decide if Gaddafi would be overthrown or not. This shows the real nature of power. Power is the capacity to nullify the enemy. NATO sought to reduce Gaddafi's nullifying power by enforcing a no-fly zone in Libya. When this failed to adequately support the rebels, NATO forces intervened in order to prop up the rebels rebels. Power, not money or unstable public opinion, but raw physical force was the deciding factor in the case of the Libyan civil war. As the conflict continued, it became apparent to outside observers that the Libyan rebels, though still united in their aim to overthrow Gaddafi, were themselves divided along many lines. By August 15th, however, the solution to the civil war was found not in talk, but in a decisive military victory. Dirk van der Waal picks up the story. Quote, an assault on Tripoli on August 15th by rebels in western Libya, aided by NATO support and logistical expertise, however, brought the conflict to an end. Within a few days, the western rebels had not only managed to conquer Tripoli, but had penetrated even deeper into the logistical and symbolic heart of the Gaddafi regime. The end of the Gaddafi regime was now suddenly inevitable. The battles of Beni Walid and Sirt, the last strongholds of the regime, would take almost another month to resolve. But on October 20th, Sirt was finally taken by the rebels and Muammar al-Gaddafi was killed, end quote. But along with Gaddafi, the gravy train of welfare and bribery also passed away. Many people who had gotten paid to mouth the slogans of the regime were now expected to work for a living or simply starve. Unsurprisingly, many didn't want to work and preferred to roll the dice on using violent force to take over oil revenue or shake down the productive oil producers. The new Libyan transitional government was on shaky ground from the start. Armed militias roamed the streets, shifting their undulating loyalties from one actor to another. The United States sent an ambassador in a diplomatic mission to Libya in order to help establish a NATO-friendly regime in Libya. Most of the agents were from the CIA. Where else, right? The ambassador was named Chris Stevens. He was sent in May 2012. Now, by all accounts, Chris was what one author called a workhorse, a lanky man with a genuine smile. He was posted as ambassador to Libya as a reward for an excellent career, first as an international lawyer, is there another kind, and later as a diplomat. He spent two years in the Peace Corps teaching English in North Africa, fluent in Arabic. Chris had worked for years in the Middle East and was devoted to furthering American interests in the region, and he was familiar with the area and some of the key players there. In March 2011, Stevens was sent as a sort of special diplomat to the Libyan rebels. Stephen helped to funnel aid to the rebels, and on June 21, 2011, Chris moved to a special walled compound in Libya. The compound was fortified and then renamed the United States Special Mission Compound in Benghazi. The property was lined with barbed wire and had walls 8 to 9 feet tall. There's a diagram of the compound up on thebattlecast.com. 
Now, there were four buildings in a shed inside this gated facility. The largest building was the villa, which served as Ambassador Stevens' workplace and living quarters. The entire grounds were reinforced for combat, including sandbag positions and armed guards, both native Libyan and American military contractors. I'll let Mitchell Zukoff describe the security measures since he spent two years of his life researching them. Quote, Part of the ambassador's villa was a fortified safe haven, complete with locked metal grills on the windows. At the interior entrance to the safe haven area stood a heavy metal gate with double locks that looked like the door to a jail cell. Exterior wooden doors were hardened with steel for added protection. The safe haven area contained a last refuge safe room, essentially a windowless closet that contained water, medical supplies, and other necessities. Two other buildings served as cantina, barracks, and security center for the compound. Since the compound was only meant to serve as a temporary residence for the ambassador, it wasn't an official embassy and consequently was not required to meet the exacting security standards most United States permanent installations in foreign countries are required to meet. In other words, the temporary embassy compounds in Libya was insecure and human beings would die as a result of that insecurity." In a video filmed and designed for a Libyan audience, Chris outlined his goals for his work in the North African nation like this, quote, I'm excited to return to Libya to continue the great work we've started, building a solid partnership between the United States and Libya. To help you, the Libyan people, achieve your goals, our two nations will work together to build a free, democratic, and prosperous Libya, end quote. Now flash forward to August 2020 to this story from the Washington Post, quote, the United Nations on Saturday voiced alarm over what it called a dramatic turn of events in Libya's civil war after a power struggle between leaders of the Tripoli-based government surfaced in the wake of anti-corruption protests. Protests over deteriorating economic conditions erupted earlier this week in the capital and elsewhere in western Libya, which is controlled by forces loyal to the UN-supported government. In Tripoli, local militia allied with the government opened fire on demonstrators with rifles and truck-mounted guns and abducted some of the protesters. Central government forces, with Turkish support, ended a 14-month siege by rival forces of military commander Hifter. The UN mission in Libya said it was still concerned about the excessive use of force against demonstrators, as well the arbitrary arrest of a number of civilians. The UN also said it is concerned about ongoing human rights violations and abuses. In the coastal city of Sirte, which is controlled by a rival militia force, it said at least one civilian was killed and several others were arrested. Oil-rich Libya was plunged into chaos when a NATO-backed uprising in 2011 toppled longtime dictator Muammar Gaddafi who was later killed. The country is now split between rival East and West-based administrations, each backed by different armed groups and foreign governments, end quote. That was from 2020. The story I'm telling you about took place in 2011 and 2012. Now you can take a horse to water. You can hold the bucket to his mouth. You can splash the water on his head, but you can't make that horse drink that water if he don't want to. Maybe our ambassadors in training need to read more Aesop and less data reports. Then maybe they can tell the difference between a horse that's willing to drink the Kool-Aid and one that's not. Now, since I just described the ambassador's compound, I might as well describe the CIA annex, where the other major portion of this battle will be fought. Zukov describes the annex like this, quote, the property was nearly square and covered more than two acres of land. 
Its generous size, perimeter walls, and multiple houses, along with its close proximity to the Ambassador's compound just half a mile and ten minutes walk away, made it an ideal base of operations for the CIA. The Annex's main features were a guard post, work shed, and four one-story houses. Well-tended lawns stretched behind each house to the surrounding walls. The houses were repurposed as combination work and residential quarters for the roughly 20 Americans who lived there. The soldiers who provided security for the annex called the area outside the wall zombie land because it looked like the scarred urban setting of a zombie apocalypse film, end quote. The annex and the ambassador's compound, along with the two square blocks between them, serve as the setting for the massive firefight that will take place on September 11, 2012. And September 11th started like any other day. Ambassador Stevens spent the day meeting with dignitaries and filing reports. He stayed on the compound all day. The daily Muslim call to prayer rang out throughout the city streets. The American flag in the compound flew at half-mast in memory of the victims of the September 11th terror attacks. As the day wore on, reports trickled into the CIA annex that Muslim protesters across the Islamic world were burning American flags and demonstrating against an amateurish American film which negatively portrayed Muhammad. But around the annex and the ambassador compound, things were quiet. Things were normal. At 9 p.m., the seven Americans on the compound were getting ready for bed. A communications specialist named Sean Smith was playing video games. Three diplomatic security operators, who are former military veterans and basically military contractors, were providing security for the ambassador and the CIA personnel in the area. They were just lounging near the ambassador's pool, talking, watching the stars, bullshitting. Most of the operators were in their late 30s and early 40s. When they weren't providing security for American personnel, they filled their days with books, video games, working out, and just lounging, talking with one another. Tonight was just another boring, normal night in Benghazi. Two more operators were also on the compound, reviewing videos or filling out paperwork, which gives a total of five aging American veterans to hold back the entire city that's about to descend on them. In addition to the five American military operators, there were seven local Libyan militiamen on the grounds charged with defending the compound. But there was a serious problem, a problem that none of the men even knew would be an issue at 9 o'clock on September 11th. The men were armed only with their pistols. Their kits of M4 rifles, body armor, radios, and ammunition were stacked back in their bedrooms. They were completely unaware that there was a security risk in the area. The ambassador was unwinding in his room, alternating his time between an issue of the New Yorker magazine, what else, right, and his diary when he heard it. It was the telltale sound of the most renowned rifle in human history, the AK-47. Men were screaming in Arabic right outside the compound's gate. It was 9.40 p.m. and all hell was breaking loose at the front of the compound. If you looked at it from the air, the teeming crowd formed an hourglass shape as they first squeezed through the criminally unlocked pedestrian gate and into the compound, firing shots in the air as they came on. There were about 60 men in the initial assault with more coming and going every minute. The local Libyan guards immediately fled fled without even firing a shot. In the first 30 seconds of the attack, the Americans had lost more than half of their effective fighting force. Anyone listening to this in a position of authority needs to remember, men will gladly draw a check to sit at a gate, but only men with character will defend the gate when the chips are down. In a rich country like America, leaders often think they can just buy problems away, but it didn't work on September 11th in Benghazi, and it won't work in New York or Toronto or Paris. Men of character! 
of backbone whose word means something are needed when the times get hard. I'm about to tell you about five of them. Millions of you saw the fictional assault on Lalo Salamanca's walled compound in the television series Better Call Saul. A corrupt lieutenant let the assault force into Salamanca's seemingly impregnable compound. The same thing likely happened to Ambassador Stevens. Incompetence invariably acted his part too. A key video camera had malfunctioned and no one had bothered to replace it. The security staff of America's highest official in Libya were now blind to what was happening in their own front yard. And you wealthy men in Pretoria and Sao Paulo and Atlanta, do you think your lowly paid security guards with a cell phone embedded in their forehead like an Orthodox Jew embeds the law of God between his eyes. Do you really think they're going to stop the teeming angry mob when they come for the fascist capital exploiters at your house? Don't trust your money to save you. Money is important. I know it, you know it, but so is character. And a nation with character has strong gates and guards who take bullets. Anyway, to be honest, no one really knows why the heavily reinforced gate wasn't locked. A modern historian relates what happened next. Quote, with the main gate open and the guards gone, the attackers met no resistance. They surged unchecked onto the manicured grounds. Almost immediately upon storming the compound, the attackers had the property under their complete control without a single shot being fired in their direction. That's when the rioters saw the rows upon rows of five-gallon fuel cans stored alongside the brand-new gleaming generator. The rioters didn't even hesitate. As quick as your pain receptors can transmit agony into your brainstem, they instantaneously started dousing the buildings and vehicles with gasoline and then set them ablaze. Then the invaders rushed towards the main building where Ambassador Stevens had just finished reading the surreal cartoons in the New Yorker magazine, end quote. Alec Henderson, the senior operator on the grounds, heard the gunfire as well. He checked the nearest window, but saw nothing and returned to his desk. Then he saw something from the corner of his eye. What was that, a bird, maybe? It was the camera monitor. And when he saw the screen, his mind went blank. Like a good-natured husband suddenly finds his wife in the very act of cheating. He just pauses and blinks. This can't be happening, right? Just so, Henderson took in the scene. Scores of men with automatic weapons were scampering and dancing right outside his window. Then Henderson flipped into gear. He switched on the alarm and a voice warned everyone at the compound thus. Henderson grabbed the mic and he screamed, Attention on compound! Attention on compound! This is not a drill! Then the alarm resumed. Then Henderson grabbed his phone and called his boss 300 yards away at the CIA annex. Boss, he told him, We're getting hit! After consulting with his superior, Henderson established himself as the emergency communications officer, using his cell phone and radios to stay in contact and provide intelligence for the Americans at both the CIA annex and the ambassador's grounds. Zukov describes the chaos facing the four other operators like this, quote, 
The sudden explosion of gunfire and chanting from the men rushing into the compound roused the four operators lounging at their barracks. The operator, who was watching a movie, ran outside and joined the other three by the pool. The men ran 50 yards to their rooms in order to grab their rifles and gear. One of them, Scott Wickland, was Ambassador Stevens' body man. He was personally responsible for the ambassador's physical safety. He lunged into his room and threw on his body armor while also locking and loading his combat shotgun and M4 carbine. Then he raced to the ambassador's residence, where he secured both Stevens and the communications specialist Sean Smith in the safe room behind the locked metal grill. While Wicklin ordered the two officials in the back of the safe room, he hit himself in the back with eagle eyes on the metal gate. If it came crashing down, only he could save the other two men. In four minutes, he went from lounging by a pool to literally fighting on the front lines of the war on terror, end quote. Such is the bitter fate God sends to us. We are nothing but wanton flies. Thanks to the actions of Henderson and Ambassador Stevens, who spent his few precious minutes at the start of the attack desperately contacting American leaders, key American CIA staff both in Libya and the United States were falling over themselves in an attempt to get help to the trapped men, suddenly transmuted from leisured wealthy Americans into trapped mice. Scott Wicklin could hear blood-curdling screams coming from outside the safe room. Meanwhile, two of the operators, along with a loyal Libyan guard, tried to make their way to the ambassador's residence to provide additional security, but it was already too late. There were armed jihadis everywhere, screaming and shooting wildly. Stepping outside was a death sentence, so the men barricaded themselves into one of the four buildings on the property. At the same time, the remaining operator named David Ubbin joined Alec Henderson in his barricaded makeshift operations center. And so, after the first ten minutes of the assault, the Americans are split into three different buildings. One operator is guarding the ambassador and a computer specialist in the main villa, while the other Americans are holed up in two other buildings. Outside the death maze surrounding the buildings, the 13 acres of the consulate was suddenly a second caliphate. The entire compound was now dangerous for Western humanists. Now, the CIA chief, Bob, back of the annex, hadn't been playing tiddlywinks this whole time. He was frantically ordering a local Libyan militia to help, but he couldn't get a straight answer from the militia leader. After 30 minutes, it became obvious the militia weren't willing to assault the compound. They had gladly taken American money to provide security for months, but when it came time to earn their keep, you couldn't even raise them on the radio. The operators in the CIA annex prepared to move out alone in order to save the trapped Americans back at the consulate. At 10.05, 23 minutes after the initial assault, the security team back at the annex made ready to take back the ambassador's residence by force using two armored Mercedes G-Class SUVs for transport in a small four-door beige sedan. Before the operators moved out, they noticed a nondescript translator and American citizen who worked for the CIA was just standing around. Now, this was the kind of featureless guy who patiently waits his turn in a line as a flash mob destroys the 7-Eleven around him, totally committed to not looking for any trouble whatsoever. The man was 60 years old, and he was about to get baptized in fire. An operator named Tonto leapt out of the SUV and grabbed the office drone. His name was Henry, by the way. You're coming with us, Henry! The man's eyes were coffee cup saucers. But Tonto, Henry protested, I'm not weapons qualified. Tonto pulled out a pistol and handed it to Henry, who held it the way conservative mothers hold pornography magazines. Here's your weapon. Go get your body armor and helmet. We need you to translate and you're coming. 
Henry didn't even hesitate. Roger, I'll be right back. And he did it. He put on his gear and he came right back, hopping into the car with the ease of a nine-year-old going to Disney World. Meanwhile, in the safe room back at the consulate, time was running out. The two civilians were flustered. You could hear it in their terror-trembling voice waves. Sir, take my cell phone and call everybody that you know who can help. Scott Wickland commanded the ambassador. Their roles suddenly reversed. Scott was crouching in the dark, shoeless. He suddenly hammered a shotgun into the chest and arms of Sean Smith, the computer specialist, the way jocks imperiously shoved dorks into lockers in high school. Sean was a trembling autumn leaf in a hurricane. His whole body shivered. His eyes locked closed. His whole body tangibly whispering, this can't be happening. It just can't be happening. Ten minutes before, he had been playing EVE Online, and now he was holding a shotgun while scores of jihadis hammered on the gates with Kalishnikov rifles. Wickland turned to Stevens and scream whispered, If they put grenades on the locks, I'm going to start shooting, and when I die, you need to pick up the gun and keep fighting. Stevens just took a minute to register what Scott was saying and then slowly nodded his head. He had just minutes left to live. Now, listener, pretend you just had minutes left in your own life, because one day you will. One day, for some of you, just a few years away, think of that. You're going to wake up and find yourself staring at the river Styx while Hades' outstretched skeletal hand beckons for you to enter his boat. Maybe there's a girl that got away from you. Call her now. Death is around the corner. Go to her. Roll the dice. I'm not saying you're going to get her. You probably won't. Roll the dice anyway, just to spit in the eye of fate, friend. Maybe you haven't talked to your brother in two years. He's just a phone call away. He could be lonely. Maybe you did him wrong. Make amends now. Tell him you love him now. Maybe you got a father and you never told him you loved him. Maybe you've got a daughter you haven't seen in years. Maybe the girl you love is going to another college three states away. The car's waiting. I'll ride with you. Go get her. You may not like what you'll find out three states away, but you won't have to look out the window at the old folks home wondering if you should have gotten in your car and drove through the night, because one day you're going to look back, and I'm going to be the only person that ever told you to go roll the dice. Roll the sons of bitches. Do it. Pick up the phone. I'm with you, and I really do care about you. You're part of my people. You matter to me. Go all the way. Roll the dice. But we left Scott, Sean, and Chris back in the safe room surrounded by hostiles in the middle of Benghazi, an outpost of liberal humanism in the middle of an ocean of Islam. Scott had his M4 trained on the gate where two jihadis were playing around with it, trying to force it open. Scott, a former Navy rescue swimmer, figured he could take out ten of them before he was overrun. That'd be great if there weren't hundreds of enemies surrounding him. Fred Wary picks up the story, quote, Then the banging suddenly stopped. The attackers left and the lights dimmed. Wickland thought at first the power was going out, but then he realized it was smoke. The attackers had poured gasoline on the villa's furniture and set it on fire, sending thick black smoke careening through the grill gate, thick, toxic, life-stifling smoke that smelled of sulfur and spread evil darkness throughout the room, end quote. The three men dropped to the floor. They lapped at their precious oxygen the way thirst-ravaged dogs devour water. Wickland turned to Stevenson Smith. We're moving to the bathroom. Follow me. It was just 26 feet away. Within seconds, the three men had crawled into the hallway. Cupping his hands to his mouth, Wickland heard the snap and pop of things exploding from the heat. For a brief second, in his own mind, he saw his own head first boiling and crusting like gooing burnt cheese on a pizza before exploding in a gelatin pasta-infused mass of human tissue and bone. He shook the thought out of his mind and slither groped towards the bathroom. He slapped his hands to the ground. 
to signal to the two men behind him in the dark, but the sounds he was making was lost in the cacophony of exploding household goods, screams, terror, and gunshots inside the bathroom. He realized he had lost Stevens and Smith somewhere in the 26-yard nightmare crawl he had just gone through. He stood up to open the bathroom window, his face a cherry, fit for an ice cream sundae, red from the heat. All opening the bathroom window did was suck more smoke into the room. He would later report that the open window acted like a chimney, funneling the smoke into the bathroom he was in. The operator struggled to maintain his own consciousness. He unslung his rifle and shouted to the other two Americans, Come on, guys! I'm moving to my bedroom! <coughs> Come on! He pounded on the floor some more as he crawled across the hall through the smoke. Reaching his room, Scott was certain. He had seconds left to live. He rushed to a window, cranked the bars open, and awkwardly tumbled onto the patio outside where exploding cinder block fragments were peppering his raw face the way Nashville barbecue pit masters slather meat and spices. Rounds were pinging all around the man. But he was alone. Fear played a piano solo on his nervous system, banging every chord. The men Scott had sworn to protect were still inside the decombusting building behind him. Coughing with every breath, his mind reeling from oxygen deprivation, Scott laboriously pulled himself back through the window he had just exited. He crawled back into his room two or three times, desperately screaming for Sean and Chris. Come on, guys! <coughs> Come on! He yelled, turning on a bedroom light as a signal. But he could only stay in his oxygen-depleted room for a few minutes before he felt himself blacking out. Withdrawing back outside, Scott's lungs clawed at the sweet oxygen, refilling his capillaries with life-giving gas. Regaining composure, Scott lobbed himself back into the bedroom and again attempted to signal to Stevens and Smith. There was no response, just tangibly hot clouds of black smoke everywhere. After a few minutes, Scott retreated back outside and reacquainted his depleted body with oxygen. Then he climbed a ladder to the roof and crawled to a skylight window, banging on it with an M4 magazine, hoping to ventilate the room. Above his head, three inches from his face, the night sky was a Star Wars film. Lasering through the darkness were tracer bullets, their quick trails seeming like zapping geometric lines of death in the night. Let A equal lines of death and let B equal Scott. Then A plus B equals Scott's head exploding off his shoulders. Wickland, his skin already blistering from the heat inside the burning consulate, tried to radio for help. His lungs were so ravaged by smoke he could barely speak. Eventually, he got through to the two Americans trapped in the makeshift operations center and let the men know that Ambassador Stephen and Sean Smith were still in the burning building. Then he collapsed on the roof. Help! Help us! Scott mumbled at the night, at God, at the existential crisis every Western man faces at some point in his postmodern life. Help me. And help was on its way. The operators at the CIA annex heard the increasingly desperate calls for aid coming in from the trapped men at the consulate. We're, we're taking heavy fire! They've overrun us! We're all locked up! We need help now! If you guys don't get here, we're going to die. You hear me? We're all going to die! When this last transmission came through, one of the operators named Tonto walked up to their team leader who was on his cell phone with some bureaucrat back in Washington and said, We need to go now. Get in the f***ing car. The team leader abruptly hung up the phone and jumped into the car. In total, six operators and one office worker sit out in two civilian armored cars to fight their way through 300 square yards of Mad Max dystopia. The operators surrounded by hundreds of hostiles. Mitchell Zuckoff picks up the story, quote, 
The two-car convoy exited the CIA annex and turned left on the dark street the men called Annex Road. With Tonto driving the armored Mercedes and following at 50 yards, Roan, the operator driving the lead vehicle, drove a short distance and turned right onto an unnamed road. He soon reached an intersection and turned right again, driving past the dirt oval horse track. As he headed west toward the main road, the men had dubbed Gunfighter Road because of all the gunshots that constantly rang out from the area. Then he turned right a third time and headed north in the direction of the consulate, trying to blend in. Still, the gleaming luxury cars might as well have had a flashing neon sign saying, Western infidels here! Nevertheless, the cars didn't come under fire. The six Americans couldn't believe it, end quote. Then the operators approached an intersection and had to slow down. Cars were stopped and pedestrians who resembled extras from the film Escape from New York milled around. The convoy slowed and passed cautiously through an intersection. A few hundred yards ahead, at a pitch-dark corner, the operators saw a group of Arab men armed with assault rifles and a technical, a pickup truck, with a heavy weapon mounted on the truck bed. The men pointed and began loudly talking to one another like agitated dogs at the sight of an intruder approaching their fence as the BMW and Mercedes drove past. The Libyan men wore black ski masks. You just knew they were ready to give and receive death. Still, no shots came. The air was thick with agitation, but there was no firefight. As the convoy moved, the operators kept their heads on a swivel, scanning the milling groups of Libyans for any threat. The world neon green through their night vision goggles. The Americans stopped the convoy and slowly exited their vehicles. They were going to try and talk to the heavily armed Libyans. They might be their militia allies the CIA had been paying so handsomely for months. As they slowly approached the Libyans, a shot rang out and the men scrambled for cover. However, they did not return fire, afraid of starting a firefight and getting stuck before they even made it to the compound. It turned out the armed Libyans were CIA-paid militiamen, technically allies of the American operators. The two groups began to plan their combined assault to retake the consulate. That's when two of the Americans approached their team leader and explained, We're going in by foot. We can't wait anymore. Their team leader gave them the go-ahead, and the two men barked at two of the Libyan militiamen milling around. Hey, you two, come with us! The men nodded their heads and joined the Americans as they slunk over an eight-foot wall and made their way to the consulate on foot, cats nimbly bounding from one covered position to another in the darkness. As the two pairs of Libyan militiamen and American security agents made their way to the compound, diplomatic security agent David Ubbin realized only one man was needed to man the temporary operations center at the consulate. Now that the crowd had left his building's immediate area, he could slip out and join the fight in an attempt to save the ambassador. A modern writer paints what happened next, quote, in full combat gear, Ubbin cracked open the door and threw a smoke grenade into the walkway he would soon pass through. The other security agent provided cover as Ubbin slinked from the operations center. Using the white smoke to conceal his movements, Ubbin slipped into the next building where he found two more diplomatic security agents and a local Libyan guard who had holed up inside a room with a makeshift barrier that looked like it was from the set of the second Aliens film, end quote. Ubbin gathered his two fellow Americans and the men suddenly transformed into Olympic sprinters as they rushed to a nearby vehicle and drove the few dozen yards to the ambassador's residence where two Americans were still inside the smoldering building. The three security agents climbed the ladder to the roof of the residence and found Scott Wicklin vomiting from severe smoke inhalation and on the brink of unconsciousness, the skin of his arms and face 
bubbled like the top of burning lasagna. Desperate to find Ambassador Stevens and Specialist Smith, Ubbin and the other two agents scrambled back down. Noxious diesel smoke still filled the safe haven. Visibility was severely limited. Two of the agents set up a defensive perimeter to guard the window while the third went inside. He could only remain inside briefly before the lack of oxygen drove him back to the window. The three agents rotated going to the safe area, which was covered in ashes like Florida blackened chicken. The operators desperately groped along the floor for the two lost Americans, trying to feel for them. At the same time, three of the operators who were back at the meeting with the local allied militia they were planning their assault on the compound, decided to move by foot to the consulate. So at this time in the story, you have two separate teams of American operators moving by foot in two separate lines towards the compound. Some Allied militiamen are with the two groups of Americans, while others operated on their own haphazard initiative, more heavily armed street gangs and soldiers. Now I want to zoom in on three of the Americans moving by foot. They used the cement block walls, which surrounded most properties, as cover and advanced at the low-ready combat position, rifle butts at their shoulders, barrels pointed safely downward, index fingers locked into the post above the firing trigger, ready to instantaneously switch down to the triggers at any instant. Thumbs caress safety switches, but the weapons were still on safe. One of the operators poked his head around a corner to peer towards the front gate, of the diplomatic compound just 400 yards away down a gravel street. He saw about 10 Arab men guarding the entrance and sporadically sending wildfire at the Americans and their militia allies. Suddenly, the street exploded with fire. A militiaman was firing his technical machine gun at the compound. The militiamen were drawing the compound attackers into long-range gunfights, covering the Americans who can now make a concerted infiltration while the compound's Libyan defenders, the men who had attacked and burned the compound, were occupied fighting the CIA-allied militiamen. The militiamen fired RPGs at the hostiles defending the compound while one American operator lobbed grenades at the hostiles from his grenade launcher. The sound was an agony of pain. Suddenly, the hostiles were no longer defending the front gate. The grenade launcher had scattered them. Now was the time for the attack. One writer explains the next steps. Quote, the three Americans seemed to lean forward as they advanced, their rifles switched hot and bristling outward. They hugged the walls as they made their way up the protesting gravel street. Each step sent the gravel pebbles screaming their position to any enemy in the area. The men ducked in and out of cutouts that led to the entrances or marked the separation between the properties, alternating the lead position, watching each other's backs and exposing themselves as little as possible. The three men bobbed in and out of two construction sites, moving steadily through the dark towards the consulate. Their muscles tensed as they scanned from side to side, their heads swiveling as regular as a metronome. With each step, they expected to encounter the enemy. The men were shadowed by three Libyan militiamen who joined them in the attack. Two of the Americans spotted a 15-foot-high mound of sand 100 yards away from the compound and worked their way to the top of it. At the same time, the third American moved forward toward the gate. He was just a few yards away, and the three Libyan allies fanned out behind him like playing ducklings behind their mother. They were about to go into the compound. Suddenly, the first American bounded into the compound, his assault rifle sticking out like a stiff arm from a blocker in American football. The man was a panther. His feet clawed away the yards between the concrete barriers and the compound entrance. That's when the second American sprinted in behind him. Finally, the third man came on. 
At the same time, the other two American operators who had first made their way to the compound on foot burst through the back entrance into the compound. So you have five Americans attacking the compound in two separate entrances at this time. More than 40 precious minutes had elapsed since the initial alarm was sounded. Meanwhile, David Ubbin was already back inside the smoking ambassador's residence, desperately searching for the Americans inside when he felt something lumpy under his hands. It was Sean Smith. Ubbin dragged the computer specialist outside and checked his pulse. Smith's veins were as dry as the Kalahari Desert, nothing flowing. At 11.01 p.m., they reported him killed in action. That's when Ubbin and the other two Americans noticed a cat-like figure running up to them. It was the three operators who had attacked through the front entrance. They hadn't taken a single round since they entered the compound. The men couldn't believe it. Wasn't there anyone in Libya still willing to fight for Allah? The first man the newly arrived Americans saw was Scott Wickland, the security agent who was with the ambassador and Sean Smith at the start of the attack. One author said Scott looked like a chimney sweep. His boyish face and light brown hair coated in black suit. Red vines of broken blood vessels covered his heavy, lidded eyes. Wickland's shoulders slumped. His feet were bare. His clothes were blackened rags. David Ubbin joined the small group of Americans. And one of the newly arrived Americans looked through the blown-up front doors and could see red-hot coals from the wood of incinerated furniture smoldering on the ruined marble tile floors. It reminded the operator of looking inside a wood-fired pizza oven. There's still a man inside, David Ubbins said to the three operators who had just linked up with him. We've got to go back inside there. The men nodded in agreement. One of the newly arrived Americans named Jack climbed through the same familiar window Wickland had used so many times to try and save his fellow two Americans. Mitchell Zuckoff again remembers what happened next. Quote, the moment Jack's feet hit the floor, he felt the most intense blast of heat he'd ever experienced in his life. He would later say it was like opening an oven door on Thanksgiving after a turkey had been roasting all day. His nose and eyes recoiled from the noxious vapors and caustic gasoline smoke. Sharp fumes from burning cloth and plastic added to the stench. No enemy attackers seemed to remain inside or even near the compound. The men quickly moved from building to building, gathering or destroying sensitive equipment and documents. The sound of gunfire had all but ceased, end quote. While Jack blindly attempted to find the ambassador's body, the last two Americans from the CIA annex arrived at the smoking shell that used to be the ambassador's residence. Now all the American operators were together in one location. As the men worked, the Islamic attackers were reforming outside the compound for a second assault. Bullets began landing inside the compound from outside the walls. It was dangerous, and the likelihood of taking more casualties forced the team leader to recall all of the Americans before someone else got killed. They loaded Sean Smith's body into the back of the Mercedes SUV, and the Americans got ready to pull out towards the CIA annex. One operator was walking between the two SUVs when he heard it. Kazoom! A grenade had gone off and ventilated an allied militiaman. At this point, the compound was under attack from rocket-propelled grenades. That's when the operators saw it. Muzzle flashes from the back gate. The counterattack had come, and the Americans weren't ready for it. They were strung out around the vehicles. A turtle retracts its head and legs in a practiced instant. So, too, did the Americans retract to the armored vehicles when a firefight broke out. The team leader screamed, Get the f*** out of here! Go, go, go! The first cars jounced towards the open front gate while the militiamen and some American operators laid down covering fire against the second wave of attackers. The first car was driven by the barely sentient Scott Wickland. 
the guy who had barely escaped the blazing inferno that killed Sean Smith and Ambassador Stevens. Disoriented, Scott drove the Land Cruiser like a drunk, often going the wrong way towards the attacking enemy. Hostiles poured AK-47 fire into the Land Cruiser from less than two feet away. The glass on the front windshield was chipping away like sheets of ice worked by a pickaxe, but the inner layer of armored screen held true. The Americans' hearts were in their throats as they made their way back to the annex. At 15 miles per hour, the time was 11.10 p.m. Back at the consulate, the two groups of enemies were exchanging fire at long distances, so you could never be sure if you were hitting what you were aiming at. The Americans just fired at muzzle flashes. An eyewitness would later say the counterattack was like watching the apocalypse. Frederick Wary describes the evacuation of the consulate like this, quote, the diplomatic security agents who had initially defended the consulate were the first to exit the gate at 11.16. The five American operators from the CIA annex covered the security agents as they left the compound. Their militia allies covered them while they dismantled a satellite dish and its equipment before they also left the compound. It was 11.20 p.m. Ambassador Stevens' body was left behind. About 30 minutes after the Americans left the compound, an amateur photographer named Bakush was socializing at a cafe when a friend asked him to come along and check out the scene at the consulate. Libyans had overrun the compound and were looting it. Outside one of the buildings, Bakush heard screaming, I stepped on a body! Someone yelled. The crowd had dismantled a window, gone inside, and discovered a motionless body next to an iron grill gate. Bakush clicked on the flash of his camera, and he saw the body of a barefoot westerner being dragged through the window, the man's face lifeless, with blackened suit encrusting the mouth and nose. Nobody knew he was. They assumed he was dead, but then somebody took his pulse, end quote. He's alive! He's alive! They shouted. Someone loaded him into a car and drove the barely breathing man to the hospital. It was Stevens. A Libyan retrieved Stephen's phone and began dialing stored numbers. The CIA negotiators were suspicious when they got the phone call from a random Libyan male, and the Libyan on the other end of the phone couldn't provide proof that he was actually with Stevens. But the crowd had found Stevens. He was at a local Libyan hospital, and the Libyan doctor performed CPR on him for 40 minutes, desperately trying to coax life back into his fading body. But it was too late. Stevens was dead. But none of the American operators back at the CIA annex were thinking of that right now. Right now, they were just trying to survive themselves. The annex base itself was under attack. Many of the American operators and security agents who had rescued the trapped survivors at the ambassador's residence were standing guard on the roofs of the CIA buildings when the next attack came on. The men were suffering from smoke inhalation and coughed like cancer victims as they fought. The operators scanned the adjoining territory and fear tingled up their spines when they saw a large group of cars massing in a vacant parking lot near the annex. One operator gave the warning, Be advised, be advised. We've got unknowns moving towards our compound from the drop-off parking lot. If you were viewing the annex from an aerial drone like the politicians were back in Washington, you would see scores of small dots moving and converging around the annex. The dots were hostiles. The attack began with a grenade. One of the operators named Tig was retrieving a case of water when an improvised bomb hissed into his room he was walking in. This is it, he thought. I'm a second from death. The bomb exploded. Light, like God reaching down from heaven, filled the room. The sound hammered into Tig's mind, absurdly making him think of headache commercials. Migraines are like an Islamic terrorist bomb going off inside your head. But there was no shrapnel. Tig checked himself. He was safe. 
That's when he heard it. It was rifle fire. Tig made his way into a combat tower and joined another operator in the defense. The attack on the annex had begun. The attackers had RPGs, too. Every minute or two, the fizzing grenades shot through the air, a snake's hiss amid the pops of AK-47 fire. And the Americans, of course, returned fire. One operator had an infrared scope and began knocking down advancing targets the way teenagers mowed down enemies while playing Call of Duty just one after another. Tracers formed neon laser rainbows in the night, oddly beautiful, even as they signified death. That's when Tig felt a freight train... Run into his stomach. He was hit. He snaked his hands into his webbing to check for blood, but there was none. His body armor had deflected the round. Thank God for body armor, Tig thought to himself as he loaded another magazine into his carbine. Mitchell Zukoff takes up the story. An American named Oz was engaging the enemy when an incoming round hit the top of the wall directly in front of him. Stone fragments bit into his face just below his night vision goggles. His visage suddenly transformed into a pimply-faced youth rotten with acne. A stream of blood flowed from the bridge of his nose. Stunned, Oz composed himself and realized he wasn't seriously hurt. He wiped the blood away and returned to the fight, end quote. Now the firefight petered down to a few rounds every 30 seconds. The two groups were dancing with one another the assaulting militiamen, trying to find hidden angles on the defending Americans. There were about 20 or 30 men trying to overrun the annex. Finally, after about 20 more minutes, the firing simply stopped. The first wave had been beaten back, but the battle wasn't over. The second wave would come soon. The American defenders regrouped as they waited for the next assault. They could see a steady stream of cars arriving, disgorging militiamen ready to die for Allah in their war against Western liberal democracy. One writer describes the second attack like this, quote, The attackers came within 100 yards of the east wall of the annex, then 50, then 40, and still the operators held their fire. The first thing Oz noticed was a shadow, but then he made out the full figure of a man coming around the rear of a car. As the man cocked his arm to throw something, Oz drew a bead on the man and squeezed the trigger. The militiaman suddenly collapsed as if an invisible giant had thrown him into the gravel. A bright white light flashed and an explosion sounded, but the bomb the man had hurled at the gate fell harmlessly six feet short. After that, the American defenders held nothing back. They concentrated rounds at the gun-wielding men in the trees and shrubs. The attackers fired back more than in the first firefight. The men shot at every hostile target they could identify, spraying bullets into the surrounding terrain. After a five minutes of steady exchange, the attackers fell back. After five more minutes, all shooting stopped. The area streets were eerily quiet. Tig looked at his watch. It was already past three in the morning. It was the longest night of the man's life, end quote. By this time, the CIA had sent a trusted operative to the hospital where Ambassador Stevens' body was located. The operative confirmed that Stevens was dead. The man was 55 years old and had dedicated his life to improving relations between the United States and the Arab world. Now he was dead. President Obama would later say this about Stevens. Chris was born in a town called Grass Valley, California the son of a lawyer and a musician. As a young man, Chris joined the Peace Corps and taught English in Morocco. And he came to love and respect the people of North Africa and the Middle East. He would carry that commitment throughout his life. As a diplomat, he worked from Egypt to Syria, from Saudi Arabia to Libya. 
He was known for walking the streets of the cities where he worked, tasting the local food, meeting as many people as he could, speaking Arabic, listening with a broad smile. Chris went to Benghazi in the early days of the Libyan Revolution, arriving on a cargo ship. As America's representative, he helped the Libyan people as they coped with violent conflict, cared for the wounded, and crafted a vision for the future in which the rights of all Libyans would be respected. And after the revolution, he supported the birth of a new democracy as Libyans held elections and built new institutions and began to move forward after decades of dictatorship. That's when America's compound came under attack. Along with three of his colleagues, Chris was killed in the city that he helped to save. He was 52 years old. I tell you this story because Chris Stevens embodied the best of America. Like his fellow Foreign Service officers, he built bridges across oceans and cultures. He acted with humility, but he also stood up for a set of principles, a belief that individuals should be free to determine their own destiny and live with liberty, dignity, justice, and opportunity. Now, the problem with men like Stevens is they don't understand Western history. The West is unique in that, as Kissinger notes, we never had a hegemonic state like China or Rome. Even our religion, Christianity, went through a unique and terribly bloody process that ultimately led to the splintering of the religion, an increase of toleration, and massive efforts by our civilization to overcome Christian infighting. Islam never did this. Ultimately, in Western Europe and America, this process led to what some of our elites call the death of God. I'm not talking about normal people. I'm talking about our ruling elites. I'm talking about the kind of people who run America and Western Europe. They believe in no deity. They believe in no active, concrete, supernatural intervention in the affairs of men. Jesus gave them two commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Our elite have forgotten the first commandment. But when they became desacralized, they kept the second. They love an abstract thing called humanity, but they have no love for divinity. This is unique to Western civilization. Islamic cultures have not gone through this process. Zulu culture has not gone through this process. It is seriously doubtful if they can be made to see the benefits of going through a process that is ultimately bleak. If we are all just matter in motion and there is no reason or sanctity of human life, why does it matter if we improve relations or not? Why does it matter if we mistreat one another or hate one another? This is Nietzsche's old critique of New England Unitarian humanism. Maybe it would be better if we just tried to live in peace with our Islamic partners instead of trying to constantly make them either our brothers or our clones. Ambassador Stevens might be alive today if our diplomacy was based in concrete reality rather than in the idiosyncratic religious and political culture of New England. What was it Morrissey said? America, your head's too big And I love you, I just wish you'd stay where you Oh, 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 oh. 
Anyway, at about 5 a.m., a line of 10 vehicles arrived at the annex. In it were seven American combat personnel along with numerous Libyan allies. The cavalry had finally arrived. The CIA chief had decided the entire annex would be evacuated, but that took extensive planning. There are documents and computer files in those buildings that could easily lead to thousands of innocent Libyan civilians being murdered for collaborating with the Americans. In the meantime, the annex would still need to be defended. The battle was not over. A few minutes later, the mortars started dropping, cascading shrapnel across the rooftops of the annex buildings. Zukov describes the third attack on the annex like this, quote, Shots flew at the Americans from unseen gunmen hiding in the surrounding terrain. The Americans never hesitated. They opened up full bore with machine guns and rifle fire, the machine gun flooding bullets and tracers into the attackers' positions. One operator named Roan laid down a withering base of fire and repeated bursts of five to seven rounds, end quote. The relentless automatic fire of Roan's machine gun echoed in the night. The Americans were blasting their enemies with steady fire while the sun peeked over the horizon. Then came a second explosion. A mortar landed 30 feet in front of David Ubbins' position. Roan gripped the machine gun with his meaty hands, holding the butt hard against his shoulder. The weapon ingested belt-fed rounds and spewed them all over the dystopian terrain surrounding the annex. Bullets and white smoke poured from the barrel. The air was redolent of cordite. Then another mortar exploded and Roan stopped firing. The attackers had adjusted their aim with devastating results. The third explosion was a direct mortar hit on the roof of a building where Roan, Oz, and David Ubbin were fighting. The blast had tagged Roan, the former SEAL with the King Leonidas beard, who extended his stay in Benghazi to help protect Ambassador Stevens, who intended to retire from GRS operator life to work with his wife, who was eager to raise his infant son and see his two older boys grow into men, who instinctively and compulsively watched over his fellow operators, who led the rescue charge into the compound, who searched through a burning building for two missing men, and who answered the first two explosions by rising with a machine gun and returning fire, had absorbed the deadly concussive force of the explosion. Oz saw Roan lying on his side, curled almost in a fetal position, motionless and silent. His machine gun was blown from his hands, broken somewhere on the grassy field below. Oz remembered his training. Get up, he told himself. Keep fighting. I've got to keep fighting. Oz clenched his assault rifle's pistol grip with his right hand, but as he lifted his left arm to grab the rifle barrel, nothing happened. He tried again, still nothing. His left arm no longer functioned. It was dead in the water, a useless, flapping, broken wing. Oz's left forearm was blown apart four inches from his wrist. He gaped at his own hand. He realized it was lifelessly, flopping, uselessly. Blood was everywhere. A minute or two later, shrapnel from another mortar sprayed Oz, whose real name is Mark Geist, hitting his arm and stinging him like a thousand bees. Shrapnel cut to the right side of his neck near his artery, and a jagged piece evaded Oz's body armor to embed itself a quarter inch between his chest, between his pectoral muscles. Another piece pierced the left center of Oz's abdomen, cutting into his diaphragm, and shrapnel entered into his left side six inches below the armpit, and more metal struck him in almost the same place on his right side. Eight to ten fragments struck his right leg, 
one high on his growing near the femoral artery. Four or five pierced his left leg from his calf up to his thigh. Small bloody holes dotted both shoulders and arms as though Oz were a boxer whose opponent had put a nail in the thumb of his glove. One piece of shrapnel struck Oz's right hip, sneaking between his belt line and the cell phone in his front pocket. Five small bits slashed his cheeks just below the night vision goggles, three under his right eye, two under his left, shocked by pain that seemed to inflame every nerve. Oozing blood from more places than he could imagine, Oz dove for cover against the parapet at the northwest corner. Geist collapsed and his lungs clawed up his throat as he felt liquid all over his body. He thought it was his own blood, but it was actually water from a nearby tank that was ruptured in the mortar blast. That's when Geist, momentarily relieved, looked up and saw two Americans, Tyrone Woods and Glenn Doherty, take hits and die immediately, their bodies crumbling like their spirit had just instantaneously decided to leave their bodies. In the same series of explosions, Dave Ubbin had suffered major injuries to his lower left leg and left arm below the elbow. Soon after the explosions, the attacking Arabic mortar team had been driven off by allied Libyan militia, and an American found Dave's body. The medic applied the first tourniquet to Dave's badly damaged leg. As he worked in the darkness, the medic accidentally raked his hand across the edge of one of Ubbin's protruding exposed bones. The razor-sharp bone sliced through the medic's skin. The medic kept working, tightening a second tourniquet just below the armpit of Dave's left arm. The medic kept speaking to Dave as he worked. Hang in there, dude. You're going to be okay. When the medic reached Oz, the wounded man said, Hey, man, look at this. Using his right hand, Oz lifted his lifeless left hand to put it in its proper place. Then he watched as he let go and it flopped back down at an odd angle. I think I broke it. Dude, the medic said, stop doing that. You're going to mess it up worse. Oz just shyly smiled. Eventually, more Americans made their way to the roof. There they found two men, Glenn Doherty and Tyrone Roan Woods, dead. Their bodies were thrown 15 feet down onto the patio below. There was no other way to get them down from the top of the building in a hurry, and any further delay might cause more men to lose their lives. Still, it was agony for the survivors to watch and hear their friends' corpses unceremoniously chunked 15 feet into concrete. And that's the end of the battle. I could describe the 50-vehicle convoy which evacuated the annex, but the trip to the airport was largely uneventful. The worst part was waiting. The Americans waited for hours for a plane to finally transport them the hell out of Libya. Meanwhile, the wounded were living through a hell of torture as their wounds sent pain signals thundering through the alleys of their bodies. It was 7.30 a.m. when the first plane load of survivors took off. The wounded grimacing with every bump in the road, with every jolt of turbulence. The 13 hours of hell was finally over. Mitchell Zuckoff gives a perfect summation of what happened to the Americans who survived the Benghazi attacks. So I'll just quote him like this, quote, Three days after the attack on the compound, the bodies of Christopher Stevens, Sean Smith, Tyrone Roan Woods, and Glenn Doherty were returned to the United States in flag-draped caskets. After a brief stop in Tripoli, the four uninjured Benghazi operators flew to Ramstein Air Base in Germany and then to Washington for debriefing. 
Jack Flew commercial and had the surreal experience of sitting across the aisle from someone reading a newspaper account of the Benghazi attacks. For Mark Oz Geist, the return home was delayed by the first of several hospital stays. He eventually faced more than a dozen surgeries and spent time at Walter Reed Medical Center with David Ubbin, who also underwent numerous surgeries and significant rehabilitation for his injuries. All five surviving American military contractors returned home and settled down to family life, retiring from government security work. The State Department held a secret ceremony for the five surviving operators. The five men could not receive higher awards because they were not active military personnel, but were private contractors. However, they received newly created CIA medals and citations signed by Hillary Clinton. They also received plaques which read, The heroism displayed by members of the security team under fire in the face of extreme risk to their personal safety during the deadly attack on September 11, 2012. The heroic actions of these professionals were selfless, valorous, and representative of the highest standards of bravery in federal service. End quote. There's nothing more I can add to that. And so, until next month, I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, wishing you all good times and good weather with good people. Bye. Oh, oh, that's good beer. Next month, we've got the military history of Rhodesia in Zimbabwe. It's an epic story of first Zulu conquest, followed by European conquest. There's not many stories like it. It's more fiction than reality, but it all happened. And we'll remember it all here. I'm looking forward to visiting with you then. Until next time, drink one for me. It's my pleasure to ride along with you in your car. It's my pleasure to be there when you work on your car or do your chores or mow your lawn or work out. All right, one last thing before we go. I want to let you know that the music you're hearing in this show today is coming to you from Hindi Amps Studio and Amy Norris. If you enjoy it, check out their links on the show notes on the website. Until then, I'll see you guys next month. Bye. Bye.